Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 52, Into the Breach, Part 2, Northern Folly. Last time, we opened up the much-anticipated Anglo-French offensive on the Somme by looking at the British assault on Tiefel village. Despite the impressive gains by the 36th Ulster Division, the assault soon crumbled under the weight of German counterattacks. By nightfall, efforts to seize Tiepfel had failed, leaving the area securely in German hands. Elsewhere along the front, French and British forces continued to push. As I laid out last day, we're going to discuss the events of July the 1st by looking at each sector individually. This week, we're going to shift our focus north and examine the British efforts between Gum Corps and Beaumont Hamel. What unfolded between these villages is the psalm of popular memory. Unlike the assault on Tiepval, which allowed for some degree of optimism, the northern attacks were utter folly, and the horrific stories which emerged have been ingrained in our collective memory. It was here where the taps of the Somme bloodbath were full on. Throughout the front, the Germans won the race to the parapet, and were at their machine guns before the British left their trenches. Of the 57,540 British casualties on July the 1st, 26,082, nearly half their total losses, fell along this 6-kilometer frontage. As a result, there was a greater density of military cemeteries, memorials, and other reminders of battle here than in any other part of the Somme, perhaps of the whole Western Front. This has enshrined the battlefield for future generations, guaranteeing that the debate over how these attacks failed so disastrously will be endlessly refought. For decades, the resulting carnage has been blamed on a number of issues, the usual suspects being ineffective shelling, poor intelligence, and incompetent generalship. Douglas Haig, Henry Rawlinson, and the Corps commanders for this week, Lieutenant Generals Thomas Snow and Almer Hunter Weston, have personified the donkeys, whose combination of overambition and incompetence resulted in the flower of Britain's youth being sent to the slaughter. Certainly, these practicalities play a central role in the coming disaster, and we'll touch on them in greater detail later in the episode. However, I feel this interpretation does not go far enough. The British did not fail through their own endeavors alone. Instead, we'll see that their failure was a direct consequence of ingenious German planning, which exploited the strategic and tactical errors of the British to the absolute fullest. After all, the British were not fighting themselves. They were competing against a disciplined and experienced adversary, who in spite of being outnumbered and outgunned, pulled off what can only be described as a remarkable defensive victory. This showed that if Britain was to compete on the continent, the learning process for her budding army was going to be very steep indeed. To begin our discussion this week, we'll start at the north end of the Somme front and work our way down. The first part of the episode will center on the diversionary effort at Gum Corps. Then we'll move down the line to examine 8th Corps' attacks between Serre and Beaumont Hamel, which will round out the discussion for this week. Gum Corps is an oft-forgotten part of the Somme battlefield. Nestled in a quiet backwater at the extreme north end of the British front, Gum Corps is a typically sleepy Somme village surrounded by woodland. Historically, Gum Corps was a quiet farming community with a population of just over 100 people. Despite its unremarkable features, Gum Corps was a position of immense strength for its German occupiers. The trenches there, 
dog-legged into a pronounced salient which jutted into British territory. The nose of the salient was covered in a forested area known as Gumcore Park, which protected the eastern approach to the village. Gumcore represented Germany's most westerly possession in France, which made it important psychologically. Like other sectors of the Somme, it had been occupied since late 1914. The German garrison was made up of three regiments from the 2nd Reserve Guards Division, an experienced body which had spent the better part of two years converting the area into a fortress. The Gumcore salient bristled with interlocking trench systems, machine gun pillboxes, and fortified dugouts. Wrapping itself around the perimeter of the crest was a depth position, the Kern Redoubt, a labyrinth of concealed machine guns, artillery, and reinforced communication trenches. This hidden redoubt, which was entrenched several meters below ground level, was built to ensure any breach could be contained before the village was threatened. For British command, the decision to attack Gumcore followed a long period of gestation. It was conceived as a feint to divert German attention from the main Anglo-French onslaught. Douglas Haig was concerned about British forces moving on Serre, who were at risk of being hit by flanking fire coming from the salient. Haig thus decided that the best way to neutralize the salient was to divide its attention, giving the Germans something else to shoot at would divert men and equipment from the big push and keep them uncertain of the extent of the Allied attack. Since Rawlinson and 4th Army were carrying out the main attack, the Gumcore feint fell to 3rd Army, commanded by Edmund Allenby. 3rd Army occupied a 25-kilometer frontage centered on Arras. Its most southern flank was defended by 7th Corps, which had a pair of divisions, the 46th and 56th, entrenched on either side of Gumcore. Commanding 3rd Army's 7th Corps, was Lieutenant General Thomas Snow. Thomas Snow, the 58-year-old commander of 7th Corps, had been dealt a bad hand. Faint attacks, although simple in principle, are actually quite difficult to pull off. Characteristically, faint attacks have fewer resources and are much smaller in scale, their ultimate goal being to distract your opponent from the main effort. If the feint is too reserved, the enemy might not take the bait. On the other hand, if they're too ambitious, you run the risk of taking on more than you can handle. There is a fine line that needs to be walked, and Thomas Snow was given the difficult job of marrying these competing ideas. Although its success did not guarantee Allied victory, its failure could be a deadly setback. After meeting with Allenby, Snow took a look at the map and was not impressed with what he saw. Because of the sharp angle at its tip, it was best decided to avoid a direct assault. Instead, the two divisions would attack via a pincer move, hitting it from the flanks and meeting up behind the village. Based on the positioning of the British units, the 46th North Midland Division would attack from the northwest, while the 56th First London Division would move up from the south. To his credit, Snow appreciated the element of danger. Gum Corps was a well-established stronghold, and the two divisions expected to carry out the attack were recent arrivals having only been in France since May 1916. A further problem lay in the acute shortage of labor, which was required to improve battlefield infrastructure. 7th Corps occupied a section previously held by the French, and the positions had not been upgraded in over a year. With labor battalions in short supply, frontline infantry were forced to make their own preparations. This included the digging of saps and hauling of equipment. Of course, since this was northern France in 1916, the weather refused to cooperate. 
The 46th front line was a muddy quagmire. Rainwater from the hills drained directly into their trenches, which made attempts to improve them a fool's errand. In the weeks leading to July the 1st, Snow met with Allenby to air his concerns. He warned him that Gum Corps was no place to launch a feint. The Germans had all the advantages, and without sufficient upgrades to the British front, any attack would stumble out of the gate. Snow suggested moving the operation elsewhere, possibly to softer areas, which the Germans would be more obliged to reinforce. After all, Gum Corps was already heavily defended, and only a sizable attack could convince the Germans to divert their resources. Allenby brought Snow's grievances to Haig, but the C&C was unmoved. Haig agreed that an attack on Gum Corps was dangerous, but in the end, felt it necessary to ensure the safety of the main advance. In Haig's mind, it was too great a threat to be left untouched. Having been overruled by Haig, Snow accepted there was no other choice. Soon afterwards, he met with his divisional commanders to hammer out a plan. It was immediately agreed that the nose of the salient should be avoided at all costs. 7th Corps intended to launch their attack from the flanks, and then join up in the rear, using a German position called the Quadrilateral as their rendezvous point. This meant that the main defenses would be bypassed, allowing them to isolate the Germans in the tip. Once the pincers closed, the British would then move to secure the village and surrounding redoubts. Snow concluded that with sufficient shelling, the whole operation would take about four hours. 7th Corps' attack plan was pretty standard. When facing a salient, most armies will attempt to remove it through a pincer move, so there was nothing overly ambitious about it. The tricky part was how to convince the Germans the attack was serious. For a feint to work, you need to give the impression of serious intent, meaning all attempts at secrecy have to be thrown out the window. Snow thus ordered his battalions to make their preparations as obvious as possible. New assault trenches, headquarters, roads and railheads were constructed in full view of German sentries. Watching all of this unfold, the Germans were all too aware of British intentions. Whether or not it was part of the larger effort, they had no idea, but the obvious build-up was something they could not ignore. Not only could they see and hear the preparations, they were able to glean additional information from British prisoners, whose raids into no-man's land were becoming more frequent. One of these raids took place just prior to the opening bombardment. On the night of June the 23rd, a company from the North Staffordshire Regiment of the 46th Midland Division was sent across no man's land to inspect the German wire. As they approached, they came under fire from German machine guns, and one of the men, Private Victor Wheat, was badly wounded. Left behind by his comrades, Wheat attempted to find his own way back, but instead fell into a German observation post where he was promptly captured. His wounds were dressed, and he was questioned before he could come to his senses. Incapacitated by shock, Wheat gave his interrogators a detailed picture of what was to come. He told them that the attack would commence after a preliminary shelling of four to five days. Since Wheat was supposed to take part in the Gum Corps attack, he also informed them that the plan was to pinch off the salient by attacking the flanks. Wheat knew this because his battalion was due in the second wave and the attack had been rehearsed several times in the previous days. Victor Wheat was not the only Allied soldier who leaked sensitive information. As Jack Sheldon points out in his book, The German Army on the Somme, there was a steady flow of British prisoners in the days prior to the attack, the bulk of which had been picked up in 8th Corps sector of Serre and Bomot Hamel, 
While we don't have exact numbers, Sheldon suggests that at least a half dozen captives told the Germans what they wanted to know. There was also the case of 23-year-old Private Joseph Littman, who on the night of June the 28th, volunteered to take part in a patrol, only with the definite intention of deserting. Littman had become completely disenchanted with the war. He had signed up in August 1914 and spent nine murderous months serving at Gallipoli. Littman, who served with the 29th Division near Beaumont Hamel, had no intention of going into battle again, and so managed to slip away from his patrol and make his way to the German line. He succeeded in his desertion, and provided his interrogators with a large amount of additional information. This included names of formations, tactics, and order of battle. By comparing prisoner testimonies to what they could see in front of them, the Germans were able to piece together a pretty coherent picture of British intentions. Although some aspects were nullified by the decision to prolong the shelling for two days, any tactical or strategic surprise had been lost. For the Germans, all it was left to do was prepare as best they could, and wait for the moment to strike. When the bombardment finally lifted, on the morning of July the 1st, the Phaeton Gum Corps got underway. At 7.30am, battalions from the 56th and 46th Divisions climbed from their trenches and darted across no man's land. Like we saw at Tiepval, the assault got off to a decent start. Assaulting units were able to enter the German system and begin fighting their way forward. The shelling on the southeast side of the salient had devastating effects. The barbed wire had been cut, and several trenches were leveled with earth and debris. The 56th 1st London Division, attacking in that sector, made the most impressive gains. Four battalions went over in strength, and by 9.15am had fought their way through the labyrinth, getting within meters of the 2nd German line. Using grenades and bayonets, they cleared the trenches of Germans one section at a time. Pockets of defenders tried to hold out, but were quickly overrun as the British surged forward. By 10 o'clock, Snow was informed that the 56th Battalions had taken a portion of the 3rd German Trench. A second report soon followed, indicating that the Kern Redoubt had been bypassed and that pitched fighting was taking place in the network beyond. Snow cannot help but feel a bit relieved. His units were performing gallantly, which bode well for the rest of the advance. However, this turned out to be the last good news of the day. Just as Snow received word of his troops' progress, things at the front took a turn for the worse. In preparation for the advance, the Germans had pulled their defenses back to the third line, which due to Snow's oversight had been left untouched by British shelling. Almost all of the dugouts, and hence the soldiers inside, had survived unscathed. More importantly, the Germans had not withdrawn in haste either. As they pulled inwards, they left behind a string of booby traps. Anything that would make a good souvenir was potentially a death trap. Helmets, boots, typewriters, mess kits, basically anything not tethered to the ground was wired with explosives. The British lost over 100 men to these improvised bombs, and word spread to avoid entering the dugouts altogether. This resulted in many of the dugouts being only partially cleared. Once the counterattacks got underway, Surviving Germans poured from these shelters, catching the British rear guard by surprise. By mid-morning, forward units from the 56th had captured three lines of trenches, and one small party had gotten within grenade distance of the quadrilateral, where they expected to meet up with the 46th Midlanders coming from the northwest. Their hopes were quickly dashed. Instead of brown khaki, 
it was the olive drab of German uniforms filing towards them. Two German regiments, the 170th and 55th Reserves, crashed against the British flank. The party which had reached the quadrilateral was sent reeling as German shells rained on their positions. For the next several hours, the two sides would exchange grenades and bayonets in prolonged chaotic fighting. Mirroring the Ulster's assault on Tietval, the British found they had been swallowed up by the German defenses. Attempts to reinforce the besieged 56th were being cut to pieces. German artillery and machine guns began to rake no man's land, preventing supplies and reinforcements from reaching the front. Supporting waves coming up from behind were ripped to shreds by enfilading fire, with few survivors being reported. With the Londoners fending for themselves, the initiative passed to the 46th Division, which had attacked simultaneously from the northwest. The 46th Midland Division was commanded by Major General Edward Stuart Wortley, a sickly man who may have prospered had he had a desk job back in England. Stuart Wortley suffered from sciatica, a nerve condition of the pelvic region which made moving around difficult. He leaned heavily on a cane which made trips to the front particularly arduous, meaning he rarely visited it. There are many instances where the word futile can be used to describe the British attack on July the 1st, but in the case of the 46th Midland Division, the word is most appropriate. In short, it was a chaotic mess. To begin, the opening bombardment had little effect. Most of the German wire was covered by a dip which protected it from British shells. After seven days, the wire remained intact, and the German machine gunners who were sheltering in their dugouts were able to complete their setup before the British infantry left their trenches. What unfolded in the northeast sector of Gum Corps was a total debacle. To even consider it an attack is doing it a great favor. It began with a smokescreen, which for the Germans was an obvious sign of attack. British infantry due in the first wave arrived at the front line the night of June the 30th and were already exhausted. In their journey from rear billets to the front, they had carried all their supplies, which included barbed wire, pickaxes, spare shovels, and sandbags. They trudged through flooded trenches, wadding in mud up to their knees. No one dared drop their packs, lest it disappear into the muck. By the time they reached the front line, the battalions were shattered. There were few places to lean and fewer to sit down. Yet, when the whistle blew, they found enough energy to grip the ladder and climb out into the unknown. One can only imagine the gripping terror felt by the men in that first wave. Surrounded in a thick fog, they could hear the thundering battlefield to the south, mixed with the muffled orders of their officers. It was important they stay quiet to avoid giving up their location. The Germans met this silence with silence of their own, as they were not about to betray themselves by firing blindly into the smoke. As the vanguard approached the German line, they expected no opposition but what materialized before them must have made their stomachs drop. The smoke was thinning, and as it did, revealed large bundles of uncut wire, the barbs still fastened to their spikes, stretching over 10 meters thick. With no gaps in the wire, they tried to cut their way through, but it was too late. Once the wind blew away the remaining smoke, the British were sitting ducks. German guns crackled to life, scything down what one defender recalled, as a solid mass of humanity. Within minutes, the dead were piled in heaps like a high watermark along the German wire. 
Within a half hour, the 46th attack had fallen into disarray. First wave battalions were annihilated almost to a man, and most of the support troops never left their trenches as heavy counterfire pinned them against the parapet. The conveyor belt pushed reinforcements forward, causing mayhem in the British network. The congested trenches were perfect targets for German gunners, who bombed them with shrapnel and high-explosive shells. There were localized efforts. Platoons and companies tried to push through the fray, but were quickly dispatched by German machine gunners. Believe it or not, the debacle of the 46th trenches was not the most controversial part of the day. Appalled at the carnage, but all the while knowing the 56 Londoners remained trapped in the salient, Stuart Wortley ordered a renewed attack at 9.30. What happened, or more correctly, what didn't happen during this second attack, was to doom the 46th infamy. The brigades in question were the 137th and 139th brigades, whose battalions consisted of South Staffords and Sherwood Foresters. These were veteran formations which had been filled with civilian newcomers. Upon receiving Wortley's attack order, their brigade commanders met to figure out what they were going to do. Both men knew that future attacks had little hope of success and were not willing to squander the lives of their men in foolhardy charges. Now I'm condensing a great deal of information, but here's the meat of it. Brigadier General Bruce Williams, commanding officer of the 137th, had been told by the 139th's intelligence officer that the 139th would not attack unless smoke bombs were available. Brigadier Williams acknowledged this, but also noted that might mean the 137th would have to go at it alone. For reasons still unclear, Williams never briefed his subordinates on this crucial piece of information. He did not stop to think that his frontline officers had not been privy to his discussion. They had no knowledge of the 139th's attack caveat and Williams failed to consider how they would act if they suddenly discovered their sister brigade was not leaving their trenches. When the time to attack arrived at 3.30pm, four hours after Stuart Wortley had ordered it, the 139th was slotted as the lead brigade on the left flank. As lead brigade, this meant they would be the ones to go over first, with the 137th using it as their cue to attack. Except, when the clock ticked over 330 the 139th remained in their trenches. A few puffs of smoke were seen, which the Germans responded to by putting down a shrapnel barrage. The 137th Battalion commanders, who remained ignorant of their neighbors' intentions, had no idea what was happening. More confusion followed, causing a chain reaction. The battalions eyed each other anxiously, but in the end, the attack never materialized. An officer of the 137th was about to order the attack through anyway, but minutes before, word came from Williams that they were to stand fast. Unfortunately for some, Williams's order did not arrive in time. A platoon of 70 men attempted to rush and were hit with murderous machine gun fire. Only two men survived unscathed. Ultimately, this turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Based on how the other attacks were manifesting, it is easy to conclude that it would have resulted in more men being sacrificed. The 46th battalions were already exhausted, and the temperature was climbing. As one survivor recalled, quote, Our lines, hopelessly sticky from the bad weather, were now congested with the dead and wounded. The communication trenches were jammed with stretcher cases and parties coming in. The up and down rules were not observed, and above all, the enemy's artillery enfiladed the front line from the north. 
Unquote. In short, hundreds of lives were saved in this abortive effort. But while this should be seen as a positive thing, there was a direct consequence, and not everyone viewed it in the same optimistic light. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into it today, but I do ask you keep this in mind. We'll be returning to it in our assessment episode. For now, there were other things that demand our attention. With the 46th Division unable to join the fray, the 56 Londoners had taken the brunt of German counterattacks. Like the Ulsters from last day, exhaustion, lack of ammunition, and overwhelming enemy resistance would eventually push them back. The attack on Gum Corps was over by mid-afternoon. Without the support of the 46th, the 56 Londoners were fighting with one arm tied behind their back. Because of this outcome, the Germans, as Haig feared, were able to swing their defenses southwards. With the diversion at Gum Corps disintegrating, British units elsewhere continued to push. Just south of Gum Corps, anchoring the left flank of 4th Army's attack front, was 8th Corps, commanded by Lieutenant General Almore Hunter Weston. 8th Corps occupied a 4km stretch of front, which ran from the villages of Serre in the north to Beaumont Hamel in the south. 8th Corps consisted of four divisions, all of which were involved in the attack. Serre was to be attacked by the 48th and 31st Divisions, while the 4th and 29th Divisions would attack on opposite sides of Beaumont Hamel. Here was the site of a major disaster for the British Army. To say a few words about 8th Corps' assault on July the 1st, what transpired there has become the prevailing image of the Somme battle. The most popular depiction of events features stiff, aristocratic officers sending waves of British infantry over the top, only to have them gunned down by German machine gunners. To some degree, this depiction holds true. Eighth Corps' attack was a total disaster, not just in strategic planning, but also in tactical execution. Entire battalions, sometimes whole brigades, were melted away in the maelstrom. Without sufficient artillery, the Germans relied on their machine guns, which dealt death at 600 rounds per minute with devastating results. Between Serre and Beaumont Hamel, very few, and I'm talking 50 to 60 men at the most, made it beyond the German wire, and those who did, did not last long. In short, what unfolded in 8th Corps sector has come to represent the harrowing and futile nature of the Western Front. In his book, Covenant of Death, novelist John Harris famously described the annihilation of a British battalion at Serre as two years in the making, two minutes into the destroying. As we'll see, Harris's description was closer to fact than eloquent hyperbole. Since many of the formations here were part of Kitchener's new army, it was the Pals battalions which took the brunt of Germany's wrath. Since these Pals battalions had been raised from local communities, the devastating losses were felt throughout the empire. At Serre, it was the northern industrial communities of England, Ackerton, Leeds, Sheffield, and Durham, which paid the price. At Beaumont Hamel, the devastation of the Essex and Newfoundlanders regiment attests to the carnage of that day. As William Philpott writes, here the volunteer army, and the spirit which motivated it, was shattered. To begin figuring out what went wrong, we need to look no further than the Corps commander, Lieutenant General Almer Hunter Weston. 52 years of age at the time of the Somme, Almer Hunter Weston was a man of severe pessimism. He was skeptical of Haig's plan, who alongside Rawlinson, 
insisted on limiting British objectives to the second German trenches. In the months prior to battle, Hunter Weston needed some looking after. Six weeks prior, Haig had paid him a visit, in an attempt to boost his offensive spirit. Haig felt he was too conservative, and wanted Hunter Weston to exploit his advantages to their fullest. As you'll recall from episode 51a, I said that Haig had stepped out of line in his talks with Hunter Weston, which only served to make a difficult issue all the more complicated. However, I did some additional research into this meeting and realized I overlooked a crucial bit of information. What propelled the visit was Haig's concern that limiting the advance would give the Germans more time to react. It was better to push on and keep going, thus denying them the chance to organize a counterattack. Haig knew the longer his men toiled in the trench system, the more danger they were exposed to. While this may sound like Haig was imposing himself on Hunter Weston, it should be noted that Haig was speaking from experience. Hunter Weston and 8th Corps had spent 1915 fighting the Turks at Gallipoli, and had not arrived in France until January 1916. As we just saw at Gumcor and at Tiepval last week, I think it's fair to say that Haig's concerns were justified. Remember, Haig had been fighting the Germans from the very beginning, so he had a wealth of experience to pull from, while Hunter Weston was a newcomer. The Germans, after all, were a different foe than the Turks, and the rolling hills of northern France were not the rocky cliffs of Gallipoli. Haig was merely trying to give Hunter Weston sound advice, which was his right as commander-in-chief. Although the last-minute timing in Haig's decision to sidestep Rawlinson does leave a lingering bad taste. You've probably guessed it by now, but Haig was not a fan of Hunter Weston, whom Haig dismissed as an amateur. But the growth of the BEF over the winter meant experienced officers were in short supply. Haig inherited Hunter Weston because he had experience in commanding large bodies of men. Although Haig doubted his skills, his powers were not limitless. He would have to make do with Hunter Weston for the time being. Hunter Weston, as I said, was a pessimist. He was not a risk-taker, and believed that each operation should be meticulously planned. Under normal circumstances, this should have made him a good leader, except for one major flaw. His pessimism often gave way to extreme optimism. He tended to think that everything was either doomed to failure, or the greatest achievement possible. During his time at Gallipoli, he was the guy who oversaw the landings at Cape Hellas, which we know was almost a disaster. To his credit, he felt the landing should never have taken place, but orders were orders, so he was forced to play along. The problem was that he was so concerned about getting men on the beach, he did not stop to think about getting them off the beach. This was Hunter Weston at his pessimistic worst. He was so afraid of failure, he felt his plan should never change. He refused to adapt to changing circumstances, and never stopped to ask, what if? However, once the Gallipoli beachheads were secure, he wrote to his wife that he had achieved the impossible, adding that the operation had been a resounding success. As we saw in our episodes on Gallipoli, this was certainly not the case. Put simply, Hunter Weston was too narrow-minded. He set the bar low, and felt that by accomplishing his tasks, he was doing an A-plus job. For 8th Corps' attack on the Somme, Hunter Weston took an exceptionally prescriptive approach. Since he was not particularly impressed with the main plan, he used his divisional commanders to advise him by committee. By July the 1st, 8th Corps had produced a lengthy 300-page document, 
outlining how the battle should be conducted, which covered infantry tactics as far down as the company level. Hunter Weston believed his staff had thought of everything. Nothing could or would go wrong. In the end, this document stifled initiative. In the old military truism that no plan survives the first contact with the enemy would prove relevant. The village of Serre was the most northern point of 4th Army's attack front. Capturing the village would allow 8th Corps to turn the German flank and give the southern attacks a window to exploit. Serre was equally as important for the British as it was for the Germans. Located north of the Ankur, just 4 kilometers southeast of Goncourt, Serre was crucial to the integrity of the German defenses in the area. The village itself, like most German positions on the Somme, was located atop a small rise called Radan Ridge. The Germans placed a premium on this position. It was imperative that it did not fall. Fortunately for the German garrison, reserve regiments 169 and 66, their defenses had already been combat tested. In June 1915, the French had tried to take Serre and nearly succeeded, which taught the Germans an important lesson. In the after-action report, Fritz von Bülow, the commander of German forces on the Somme, outlined several areas in need of improvement. As a side note, these after-action reports were an important cog in German military doctrine. They served a practical purpose and were not stuffed into a drawer and forgotten. After each engagement, frontline officers would write up their assessments and pass them up the chain. The army commander would then release operational instructions based on these reports. These instructions were passed right down to the company level, and NCOs were responsible for posting them throughout the trenches. Everyone was expected to read and understand the contents therein. This dialogue between high command and front line allowed the German army to grow and adapt. It was also important for morale, which showed that senior staff were not oblivious to conditions at the front. Von Bülow's report of June 1915 is crucial in the development of German defenses particularly in the areas of Serre and Beaumont-Hamel. It highlighted several key points which proved invaluable, one of which stressed the importance of mobility. In 1915, the French had broken into the German position, largely because many of the Germans were unable to leave their dugouts in time. In order to prevent this, von Bülow ordered all dugouts should have at least three to four exits, and alarm systems to be installed to warn sheltering troops of enemy advance. In regards to the British attack in 1916, von Bülow's instruction also stressed the need for continual training and discipline. The army must not get too complacent, and garrisons must be able to vacate their dugouts effortlessly. Von Bülow's report indicates this clearly. He concluded, and I quote, The men must be drilled intensively to pour out of the dugout swiftly and to race to their positions. The regiments are to lay down the necessary words of command for this procedure. Then came the important part. In order to remove any doubt about the matter is to establish who is in charge of each dugout, so that, if in the event of an enemy attack, certain groups do not man their battle positions in time, the relevant commander can be court-martialed. I require the necessary action to be taken with the utmost urgency. End quote. Hunter Weston aside, the skill of Germany's defenders played an equal role in the coming disaster. The Germans, for lack of a better term, operated with mechanical efficiency, which even after a week of heavy shelling was unbroken.
They worked in small teams, practicing hauling their machine guns up the steps hundreds of times over the following year. Every inch of no man's land had been pre-sighted, so by the time the British attacked on July the 1st, it was like second nature to them. For the Germans, all the training and rehearsal was about to pay off handsomely. In the aftermath of the French effort, the Germans also did something else. They relocated the Serre defenses to the higher ground to the east, instead of in the village itself. Following in their efficient pattern, they also turned the area into a fortress. It was surrounded by four deep trench systems, and the dugouts were 11 meters deep, reinforced with concrete and steel rebar. The barbed wire was arranged with V-shaped false entrances, which would draw attacking troops into designated killing zones. The British would funnel into these entrances, and the machine guns would do the rest. Eighth Corps' objectives for July the 1st were pretty straightforward. The 29th Division to the south was to seize Beaumont Hamel. In the middle, the 4th Division was to attack a German strong point known as the Heidenkopf. The 31st and 48th Divisions to the north were to advance on Serre. South of Serre, the 31st Division was to capture Radan Ridge, while on their left flank, the 48th was to bypass the village and turn the German flank by wheeling northward. It was expected that this would roll up the German defenses and isolate their communication lines north of the Ankar. The plan for 8th Corps was certainly ambitious, but Hunter Weston was nonetheless hopeful. The weight of the seven-day bombardment was enough to soothe his remaining doubts. On the eve of the attack, he confided to his diary, quote, Tomorrow is the great day. By this time tomorrow, another great page in history will be turned. Everything promises well for the success of the great venture. Never have I entered battle with so many chances in our favor. End quote. Unfortunately for the British, Hunter Weston's prescribed tactics played directly into German strength. To signal the start of the advance, 8th Corps had set a trap. Directly in front of Beaumont Hamel, there was a German redoubt that protruded from the German line, and which provided them with dominating views over much of the 29th Division sector. This redoubt was entrenched atop a plateau called Hawthorne Ridge. From this position, German sentries had a clear view of the British trenches. Hunter Weston correctly identified that any concentrated effort against Beaumont Hamel would be splintered by this obstacle. So, to clear a path for the 29th Battalions, British command decided to blow Hawthorne Ridge sky-high. 20 meters beneath the Hawthorne Redoubt, British engineers had spent months setting a massive underground charge. It was called Hawthorne Mine, and it was packed with 18,000 kilograms of aminol. Hawthorne Mine would serve two purposes, to eliminate the German Redoubt, and to give attacking infantry a forward position. Seizing the crater would place a wedge in the German defenses, allowing the occupying British to hold the door for the support waves moving up from the south. It was all very grandiose, except for one major problem. 8th Corps' commanders could not decide when best to blow Hawthorne Mine. Hunter Weston wanted to fire it off some four hours before zero, thereby enabling the crater to be captured and consolidated before the general attack. His suggestion was vetoed by Haig. The British had yet to show they were capable of occupying craters quickly. The Germans, on the other hand, were experts in the art. After meeting with the inspector of mines, a compromise was reached. 
Hawthorne Mine would be fired 10 minutes before the attack at 7.20 a.m. Blowing the mine 10 minutes early was little consolation to anyone, except maybe Hunter Weston, who feared his men might be hit by descending debris. But Hunter Weston took it a step further. For reasons which are still unclear, Hunter Weston ordered that all the artillery, that's right, all the artillery, the lights, the heavies, the mortars, everything, would be lifted just prior to detonation. So for 10 minutes, there was nothing to suppress the German defenders. In other words, the Germans had 10 minutes to set up their machine guns, finish their cigarettes, and carry up extra ammunition before the attack even started. I am not exaggerating here. German machine gunners were specialists, who could have their weapons set up, loaded, and cocked in under a minute. Those extra nine minutes were like an eternity to them. As we'll see, it was all that was needed to doom the attack to failure. At 7.20am, the British guns fell silent, and Hawthorne Mine was detonated. Filmmaker Jeffrey Mallins captured the whole thing, which is possibly the most famous single picture of the Somme battle that rests in popular memory. The detonation threw clumps of earth a thousand feet into the air, and the roar of the concussive wave nearly snapped the leg of Malice's tripod. The blast destroyed the redoubt, blew up several sections of German infantry, and caved in several large dugouts, entombing a number of occupants. However, this proved a tactically catastrophic event. The roar of the mine told the Germans the attack had commenced. Owing to shorter communication lines, word passed through the regiments and a flurry of activity followed. Alarms went up, and shouts of centuries tore them from their days. German soldiers rushed to their positions, hauling their machine guns, rifles, and belts, as they had done numerous times in the past. They had survived the bombardment. They were bloodied, exhausted, and terrified. If they were to live out the day, they had to win the race to the parapet. If they could set up before the British arrived, they stood a chance. Anxious to leave their dilapidated shelters, they were able to breathe the fresh air once again. Within minutes, two German platoons occupied Hawthorne Crater, which, at over 55 meters across and 18 meters deep, gaped like an open wound in the side of the hill. As they rose to the lip of the crater, they could see the glimmer of bayonets on the horizon. The first wave of British troops were crawling out of their trenches and advancing across no man's land. The rest of the story can be easily told. Across 8th Corps' attack front, the British were hit with a wall of steel. Machine gun and artillery fire slammed into them. The crest of the first wave was soon fragmented by the belts of uncut wire. German artillery fired into the British masses, splintering and wiping out entire companies. Cohesion among the British faltered. Some attempted to push on, while others ceased to exist. Thousands never made it beyond no man's land. Those who did found the German wire was uncut. With no gaps, the desperate parties tried to cut their way through, but it was too late. Caught upon its barbs, they were riddled with bullets. Along 8th Corps' attack front, this pattern repeated. At Serre, the PALS battalions of the 31st and 48th Divisions were ripped to shreds. Here, concealed machine gun nests had a rich harvest. The British had no knowledge of these positions. Advancing infantry were caught in a kill zone which they didn't know existed. This played havoc on the flanking parties, who were blunted by these defenses. 
Incredibly, some were able to penetrate the curtain and reach the outskirts of Serre, but this was as far as any 8th Corps soldier would reach that day. German snipers concealed in the rubble picked them off as they approached, and mortar fire coming from the fortified houses took care of the rest. South of Serre, on the slopes of Radan Ridge, pitched fighting had broken out at the Heidenkopf, where the British 4th Division had gone into battle. The Heidenkopf was located between Serre and Beaumont-Hamel, and was basically a giant booby trap. It consisted of four underground tunnels, which spread like fingers towards the British line. The end of each tunnel was packed with 1,500 kilograms of explosives. The Germans had planned to detonate the mines once the British attacked, but they were thrown for a loop at the last minute. The British knew of the Heidenkopf, so like the Kern Redoubt at Gumcor, they planned to sweep around it. When the attack came, the mines were detonated but had little impact. There were some casualties, but overall, it had no effect on the flow of battle. As they pushed on the left and right of the Heidenkopf, units of Sheffield City Battalion had taken up scratch positions. Barricading themselves with sheet metal and sandbags, the Sheffields attempted to hold on, but it was little use. With the attack on Serre faltering, their grip on the Heidenkopf was eventually defeated. German counterattacks were assisted by reinforcements coming from Gum Corps. Slowly but surely, the British garrison were forced back out, leaving the Heidenkopf in shambles, stuffed with corpses and smashed equipment. On the 29th Division's front opposite Beaumont-Hamel, things were faring no better. Here, the scene was one of complete and utter carnage. The village of Beaumont-Hamel was one of the fortress villages located just behind the German line, a masterwork of German brainwork, spadework, and ironwork, according to one British assessment. The most striking feature of the Beaumont battlefield is the terrain. In one of the few instances on the Western Front, it was the British who held the high ground. No Man's Land was 200 meters across on a declined slope all the way to the German wire. Here, it got tricky. The first German position was dug along a ravine, which at its lowest point was 40 meters below the British line. This ravine, called Y Ravine because of its shape, was the main artery of the German fortress. It serviced their defense line south of the village, and offered them ideal protection from British gunfire. I can attest to this from personal experience. In 2011, I visited Beaumont-Hamel and walked in the direction of the British advance. Strip away all the trees and undergrowth, and it is easy to see that the British stood no chance. Looking northward from the British line, the German trenches are hidden beneath the outer lip of the ravine. Walk to the other side, and you're greeted with a very different view. Climb to the edge of the ravine, and you're able to see the British positions as clear as day. Furthermore, in the days leading to the main attack, the British had cut gaps in their wire to allow infantry to pass through freely. German observers could see these gaps, which gave them a perfect target for machine guns. Most of the British casualties fell before even getting to no man's land. In the end, the preparations which meant to aid the advance turned out to be death traps. If you go to the website, I've uploaded a couple of photographs to give you a better idea of the terrain. The attack south of Beaumont-Hamel was led by 29th Division's 87th Brigade, consisting of the 2nd South Wales Borders and 1st Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. They were to storm the German line and Y Ravine, take the village, and then press on to the immediate German line one kilometer east of the village. 
The detonation of Hawthorne Mine alerted the Germans to attack, the wave of concussive energy tearing them from their thoughts. The exhausted warriors emerged from their dugouts, and by 7.30 were primed with murderous intent. The 87th Brigade left their forward trenches and began walking towards the German line. To preserve unity, the battalions were packed together in groups. They were moving shoulder to shoulder, with less than a half meter separating them. One German, who watched this doomed spectacle later recollected, quote, We were very surprised. We just had to load and reload. We didn't have to aim. End quote. The 87th Brigade was cut down in heaps, and never had machine gunners had such straightforward work to do. The British were simply massacred by the thousands, and the all-too-familiar pattern repeated itself. Having destroyed the leading waves, the Germans turned their attention to the follow-up formations, many of which were forced over open ground since the communication trenches were clogged with the dead and wounded. The conveyor belt fed more men into the maelstrom. As the British continued to push, the Germans continued to fire back. Machine guns raked back and forth. Barrels glowed red as belt after belt was fired. With no water to cool down the jackets, the Germans urinated on their weapons to keep them in action. For them, there was no choice. They had to keep firing because the British kept coming. Sweating and straining, the defenders did their job. The well-rehearsed loading and firing routine was repeated over and over again. Skin hung like ribbons from the burnt hands of the gunners, but the fire never slackened. Unter-Officer Otto Lace, a gun commander of Beaumont Hamel, later recalled the efficiency with which his team operated. Quote, Throughout all this racket, this rumbling, growling, bursting, cracking, and wild banging, could be heard the heavy, hard, and regular tack-tack of the machine guns. That one firing slower, this other with a faster rhythm. It was the precision work of fine material and skill, and both were playing a gruesome tune to the enemy. End quote. Against this sinister backdrop, some field commanders refused to send their men into battle, but others were not so lucky. By 8 o'clock, it was clear that the attack had floundered. No British infantry had made it to the German trenches, and no man's land was littered with the dead and wounded. But at 8.30, there was a glimmer of hope. East of Beaumont Hamel, a white flare was spotted over the village. For the British, a white flare meant success. Someone had found a breach. Word of the potential breakthrough found its way to the 29th Division's commander, Major General Henry Delisle. Delisle had two formations in reserve. These formations were the 1st Essex and 1st Newfoundlanders regiments. Upon hearing the good news, Delisle took one of the day's most fateful decisions. He ordered the Essex and Newfoundlanders regiments to follow up the attack. Had there been a breach, this decision would make practical sense, except for one technicality. There was no breach, and the white flare had not originated from the British. The Germans used white flares as well, but in their case, they were used to direct their artillery. Everyone at Delisle's HQ knew this, but so eager were they to capitalize, they did not stop to consider this danger. This lapse in judgment would lead to catastrophe. The Essex and Newfoundlanders were assembled in the support trench some 200 meters behind the front. The plan was to have the formations attack together at 9.15am, 
with the Newfoundlanders covering the left flank. They were faced with the task of advancing down a slope, in an area where the Germans had a huge advantage in fire superiority. To make matters worse, they were expected to attack without artillery support. The British guns were busy getting themselves ready to shell the second German line, so there was nothing they could do to help. Lack of artillery was not the only issue. The communication trenches leading to the front were in shambles. The Essex Regiment found their passage to the front blocked by the piles of dead and wounded. This delayed their approach for over an hour, forcing the Newfoundlanders to go in alone. At 9.15am, the Newfoundlanders' commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Haddow, decided he could wait no longer. There had been no news of the Essex whereabouts, and he decided to have the Newfoundlanders attack on their own. Ordering his men out of the support trench, the Newfoundlanders advanced across open ground, perfectly silhouetted for German gunners. Before they could begin their advance across no man's land, they had to cross their own forward line and navigate through the wire, which was still 250 meters away. Every step was met with heavy machine gun and artillery fire. Many Newfoundlanders were killed before making it to their own front line. The Newfoundlanders advanced by the book, with men properly spaced according to Hunter Weston's attack document. With chins tucked to their chest, they wadded off through a hail of machine gun bullets and shrapnel. Many were cut down before reaching their own wire. Once the survivors did so, the disaster was complete. The Newfoundlanders had to bunch up in order to pass through the gaps, and here they were mown down in heaps. Only a few made it down the slope and into no man's land. It was all over by 9.45 a.m. No man from the Newfoundlanders regiment made it to the German wire. In fact, none of them got further than halfway across no man's land. With a total of about 700 casualties, including 230 dead, out of 800 who had gone into action, the 1st Newfoundland Regiment had been virtually annihilated for no gain whatsoever. So traumatized were the survivors that when roll call was taken the following morning, only 68 men answered to their names. Today, a proud caribou stares defiantly at the preserved trenches of Newfoundland Park, marking the location of the Newfoundlanders' disastrous attack. In 1916, Newfoundland was not yet part of Canada. It was a self-governing colony, fiercely protective of her unique identity. Her population at the time was just 241,000, and from this number, about 1,000 volunteered, which quickly filled the need for an entire battalion. It took weeks before news of the disaster began to trickle home, and when the magnitude of it was finally revealed, it hit the small colony like a sledgehammer. The regiment had been its pride. Nearly everyone knew, or knew of someone who served. Hearing that it had been annihilated was almost unfathomable, which seared the events of July the 1st into Newfoundland's cultural memory. Now for you non-Canadian listeners, this may not seem as significant. As you may or may not know, July the 1st is nationally celebrated as Canada Day. It was on July the 1st, 1867, that the country was unified through Confederation. Newfoundland would not join Confederation until 1949. To this day, while the rest of the country celebrates Canada's birthday, July the 1st remains a day of mourning in Newfoundland, out of respect of events at Balmont Hamel. 
Newfoundland Park is one of France's most popular battlefields, receiving thousands of visitors each year. To take a tour of the park is to walk through history. The trenches, craters, and wire spikes remain perfectly preserved. Aside from the herds of sheep that now populate its fields, little has changed since 1916. The Caribou Memorial is particularly moving. A large plaque lists the names of all 700 men who perished on that dreadful day. Look close enough, and you'll see that the caribou's mouth is ajar, as if it were bellowing in agony, attempting to call the lost souls home. If you ever get a chance to go, I cannot recommend it enough. Although it is not a complete picture of the psalm, it is a fitting testament to the horrors of war. Anyone with an interest in military history owes it to themselves to visit at least once. What makes the sacrifice of the Newfoundlanders all the more unnerving is that by 11 a.m., 8th Corps' attacks were halted. Supporting units were told to stand fast, and those units fighting in the German positions were forced to pull back. Before sundown, Gum Corps, Serre, the Heidenkopf, and Beaumont Hamel remained in German hands. The British had not made any permanent territorial gains. Pockets of British resistance were systematically cleared, and the lines remained unmoved. The Butcher's Bill for this day is something to behold. British casualties at Gum Corps were 6,796, including 2,765 men killed or missing. Nearly two-thirds of these casualties were incurred by the 56th Division. German losses were three officers and 182 men. In 8th Corps sector, the preponderance was even greater. At Serre, the 31st and 48th Divisions lost 3,600 and 5,754 respectively. 4th Division, attacking at the Heidenkopf, added 4,692 casualties to this number, bringing it to 16,150. Against these three divisions, German losses were 1,170, including just over 150 dead. The worst was saved for the 29th Division at Beaumont Hamel which suffered 5,240 men killed, wounded, or missing. German losses were 7 officers and 144 men killed, 24 of whom had been killed in the detonation of Hawthorne Mine. 6 officers and 266 other ranks rounded out the wounded. In total, German losses were 423, about one-twelfth of the total British losses over the same area. By the end of the day, the Germans were so horrified by what they saw, they allowed a temporary truce for the British to clear their wounded from no man's land. Despite the optimism of Hunter Weston, 8th Corps failed to capture any of its objectives, although it suffered the highest losses of any British force on July the 1st. In the next episode, things will continue to go bad. Since we've already covered Tiepval, we'll be leapfrogging further south and situating ourselves at Ovieres and La Boiselle. Situated on either side of the Albert-Balpalm Road, these two villages were held by the Germans. This was the main axis of the British advance, and the plan was for the 8th and 34th Divisions to advance two and a half miles on the first day. But, like in the north, things did not go that way. The British attacks were repulsed with crushing casualties. Of the 18,000 men who went into battle, 11,000 were dead and wounded by nightfall, 
It was this battle which Churchill immortalized in The World Crisis, his five-volume history of the Great War, first published in 1923. Churchill will be a narrating presence, although his retelling of events is slanted due to his official posting. Still, his account of the battle resonates a century later. Churchill strove for balance, and his determination to support his claims with evidence shows his formidable skill as a writer and historian. Unfortunately for the men in the trenches, a Churchillian treatment could not make up for what was to come. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This week, I would like to thank our most recent donors, Tim, Greg, and Steve. If you are enjoying the show and want to make a donation, you'll find the donate button up on the homepage. Donations go to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been part two of episode 52 of the Great World Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.